You're listening to the Arise Church Podcast. We are an Acts 29 church in Ventura, California, where we exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage culture. Find out more info or hear more sermons at our website, ariseventura.com. Thanks for listening. I want you to picture yourself in this story. I want you maybe even to close your eyes and to place yourself in this story as its main character. I want you to see yourself in David's shoes. David was the king of Israel. He had prominence, he had privilege, and he had prestige. He reigned over all the people and all the nation, not just spiritually, but he literally reigned over all the land. And even though David had sinned greatly, he committed adultery, he committed murder, and uh, he was ultimately a, a person who lied and misrepresented God's truth. God still forgave him and God blessed him. God put him over the people. He consecrated him, calling him a man after his own heart. Just means that God had chosen David. That God still chose to bless the people of Israel through his throne. And just as it is with you and I, there are times when we sin things that we have done, whether it be before we uh, understood that God had chosen us together in Christ, or maybe it is even sins that we still commit here and now on this side of knowing Jesus. And even though God may forgive us for our sins and still use us, there are consequences. More often than not, there are still residual and even generational consequences for our disobedience and for the decisions that we make. And so David goes on to build a family. He has children and he has children from his legitimate wife and also from his illegitimate wife. And the epitome of a broken home is what we get introduced to when we look at David's life and his household. The Bible tells us that David's oldest son, his name was Amnon. He had seduced his half sister that she was appealing to him and he wanted to have her for himself and she refused him. And so Amnon did the unthinkable. He raped his half sister. Tamar was raped by him and kicked out of his house because he wanted what he could have from his, again, half sister and she was worthless to him otherwise. She went back to live with her full brother, which would have been Amnon's half brother. And that was Absalom. Absalom took revenge for his sister uh, Tamar. And Absalom, he had a sheep shearing business. And so he went to his father, David, and he tricked him into sending his other son out to work with him. And when he did so, not unlike us, after a day's work, the normal person wants to kick back, relax, and maybe have a drink or a few. Absalom waited, him and his men, until his brother was drunk at the end of the day, and he killed him. He murdered his brother 
who had raped his own sister. From here, Absalom fled into exile because he knew that it did not please his father and that he was going to have to pay for consequences. And so now the whole family is just breaking down and breaking down, getting worse and worse. After a while, the king permitted him to return. David said, you can come back. But even though you're permitted to come to Jerusalem, son, I can't stomach to see you. And so David had his son Absalom to come back to Jerusalem, but not to see him for the period of two years. Resentment built up and Absalom began to get disgruntled and he started to court other people into his being disgruntled. He started to call others in David's kingdom and offer himself to be more sympathetic and more uh, understanding and, and a much nicer and a better ruler. He played the place of the ultimate crafty politician. He minced words, he slandered his father, and he swayed the people after him to the point that the whole nation, the whole kingdom, with the exception of a few, turned away from David and turned to serve Absalom, his son. And the first thing that Absalom did was he told those who were following him, the nation, that his orders were to put to death David and everyone who remained following him. His first orders were to kill his father. It's at this point that we read of David's humiliating exile. And now he's gone and he's been in a place of prominence and he's been in a place of prestige, but now he falls down to a place where he's banished from his kingdom, and when he and all his servants and their little ones, their children even, grabbed what they could, they ran for the wilderness because they knew that they must leave in order to save their lives. In hopes of staying alive, they ran to the wilderness. Second Samuel chapter 15 tells us that David fled, and while he fled the city, he was weeping and walking barefoot with his head covered in shame. And all the people who walked right alongside him also had their heads down and were also in shame. And were also weeping. And if that's not enough, adding insult to injury, there came a time where they came to the edge of the city. And in 2 Samuel chapter 16, one of Saul's uh, uh, family members, which Saul was one of David's or Saul was David's predecessor who had reigned before him. One of his household stood and followed along the hillside and he cursed David. He called him everything but a child of God. His name was Shimei, and he would just go and he would fling rocks at him and he would kick up dust at him and he would call him a worthless man and tell him he was treacherous and he was murderous and he was a scandalous villain who the earth should be rid of and he did that continually following their parade out of the city. He's kicking up dust at David saying, you're worthless. You're less than a human being. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Psalms, uh, Saul's household. And it's as if to say, you know, this, this injustice that's coming against you, David, you think that this injustice is so bad, but the truth of the matter is, is that this is God paying you back. You're complaining about the injustice that has come against you and your small number of people. But you know what? What about all the Israel on Israel crime? 
What about all the things that you have done and the ways in which you have shed blood in Saul's house? He says, we don't feel sorry for you, not one bit. You brought this on yourself. There's no compassion for you. There's no empathy for you. You're worthless. These are the words that are spewed toward David on his way out of the city. This is all the true account of David from 2 Samuel chapter 11 down to about chapter 16. It's a tragic story. It's a scandalous story. And it's a story that's full of injustice, but it's also a redemptive story. Throughout the whole account and sprinkled throughout is this account of these bittersweet providences that point to the faithfulness and the loving kindness of the God of Israel, Yahweh, creator of heaven and earth. I want us to hear about one of those moments today. Before I do, I want to pray and ask God to give us a mind to put ourselves in this place and to learn from this, knowing that this is a word for us today, not just a historical account from five, six thousand years ago. Father, we do acknowledge you as the Lord and the creator of heaven and earth. It's my prayer that as we bow before you now, even virtually in different places, God, that we would be overcome by the realization that you're with us at all times and that, God, you hear our hearts cry. God, a word like this comes from a place that I realize will land on different ears in different ways, but I know that you know how to use your word and you do so in, 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 in many and infinitely wise ways. And so I just ask that you would go before me, Lord, that your word would speak, that your truths would stand and God, ultimately that we would learn to trust you. Father, I ask for grace that the Holy Spirit, only the Holy Spirit can give, that the Holy Spirit would fill us and lead us and teach us and convict us and change us. We pray these things in the matchless name of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the things that I have read to you and stated to you again, are a summary that come from David's uh, exile and a time where he fell from, uh, you know, pr uh, prominence because his son had came and caused an insurrection in the nation and actually stole and took over the throne. And now you find David out heading out toward the wilderness and, and fleeing his son so as to save his own life. And there are all of these things that must be just crashing in in David's conscience, thinking about the fact that these are consequences of the life that I've led, the decisions that I've made. And oh, how terrible it is, how terrible it is that sin has disrupted our household. And so in fleeing, David actually finds himself at a spot where he doesn't know what to do, but he knows who he can turn to. We're going to be in Psalm chapter three as we start our summer in the Psalm series and Psalm three 
As you'll actually find here is a psalm that was written by David during the period that we just kind of summarized and glossed over that period of years where he was fleeing his son. Psalm chapter three, I'm going to read the whole thing in your hearing. If you've got an English standard version like me, you see that at the top it says, save me, O God, that's not inspired. But what is inspired right, be- right below it is the title that goes along with it and should be included if we're faithful to the interpretation of this in verse number one. So read with me. Psalm three, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is Psalm chapter three. And what we find is that this was written during the time that David was running from his son. Psalm three is a psalm that's given to us to help us to find rest in times of unrest. The main point I think God wants us to consider today even as we consider our own circumstances and our own cultural climate, maybe even our own experience. I know for me, and you'll probably hear some of this as it comes out, this is, this is ministering to my heart directly, teaching and changing and correcting me and my points of view. The main point I think God wants us to consider is that resting in and trusting in God in times of injustice and protest is an act of faith and not fear. Let me say that again. Resting in and trusting God in times of injustice and protest is an act of faith and not an act of fear. Here, the psalmist writes a beautiful song that provides us three ways we can rest in and trust the Lord when everything around us seems to be against us. Here they are. The first three, the three things are he finds place to lament and pray. The secondly, he finds strength to lay down in peace. And thirdly, he remembers that it's the Lord he praises. Let's take them up one by one. The first thing that I have for us is that David, the psalmist, finds a place to lament and to pray. If you're looking at your text, you see it right there. I mean, from the outset, he says, oh, Lord. That old Lord is an exclamation. He's crying out at this moment. I imagine that as he's writing this on a morning, this is a morning psalm. So he's woken up one morning and he begins to write a song and he's thinking about the fact that it's just him and only a few people with him. He once ruled over the whole nation and now he's running from his son trying to save his life. He sees children and women and innocent individuals whose lives are on the line and he cries out to God and says, oh Lord. 
This is one of the first psalms that is a lament psalm. There's a series of psalms throughout the book that we have called the psalms that are laments. In fact, though, all maybe about a third of the psalms, you could say, are lament psalms. This is not a time for David to write a song that's all about rejoicing and all about happiness and all about joy. No, he wrote a song that he began with grief. David cries out. He says, oh, Lord, how many are my foes? He cries out and he says, many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. God doesn't even care about him. God isn't even looking out for him. God will not even save him. He's crying out before the Lord in anguish and he cannot comprehend just how and why and where did this come from? David cries out. One of the things I've been thinking about this week, even as last night, there were 30 cities, at least that we could count in the U.S. that were up in arms of protest because of the things that have happened here recently, primarily with George Floyd, but with other image bearers and the ways in which not just they're cut down and their lives are cut short, but there seems to be no justice for them. When I see that, I think of and I feel feel the weight of, oh Lord, what, what, what more can I do? What must I do? How long do I have to deal with this? How many are my foes? And David cries out. And as he cries out, he only, he doesn't only cry, but he actually laments when he laments, he's saying, I've got a many, I've got a multitude. I've got so, so, so many of people who are rising up against me. I want you to listen to Mark Vergat. He wrote a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. I want us to find a good definition for what does it mean to lament so that we can properly understand even what do we see David doing here and how can we apply that to our own lives. From Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Mark says lament is different than crying because lament is a form of prayer. It's more than just the expression of sorrow or venting or of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain and it has a unique purpose, which is trust. Did you hear that? Lament talks to God about pain and it has a unique purpose. And that is trust, your trust, my trust, our trust of God and who he is. That's the purpose of lament. He goes on and he says it's a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations and our sorrows for the purpose of helping us to renew our trust and our confidence in God. How many are our foes? How many are my foes? How many are rising up against me? I mean, he, this, he says there's no salvation for him and God is what they all say. You got to think the nation has denied David justice. That David is the rightful king. David should have been defended. David should have been believed. David should have been given a fair trial. David should not have been rejected and gone after or, or, or and banished from his place because others have gone after a smooth sounding son in, or son of his. 
Though he's meant to enjoy life and liberty and even to lead the people, now everywhere he turns, he's marginalized and he's ostracized in society. This is the language of the minority experience. This is the language. This is the cry of a man who knows what it's like to be in the minority. You even pick it up in verse number six. He says, I'm not going to be afraid of what? Of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. He's saying many and many and many and many because what he's trying to say that I'm a part of now a few, a few, a few, a few, and we're underrepresented and we're marginalized and we're being banished and we don't get justice. This is so much injustice. God, where are you? God, what are you going to say? What do you have to say? Oh, Lord, how many are my foes? I'm a minority and it's just getting worse. David's response is lament. David is grieving in these moments. He complains to God. You know, this month, as I've thought through these things and I've even written some blogs and I've tried to just work through what am I supposed to say and how am I supposed to respond to these things? And I'm online and I'm talking on the phone and things like that. And everybody wants to know, how do you respond or what, do you, what should you say? I, I can tell you there, there are times where it's just like, man, I can't even answer that phone call right now because I don't think that I'm going to say what God would have me to say. So mama told me, if you don't got nothing good to say, just don't say nothing. I felt urges to complain and to bemoan the minority experience in America and to even complain, right? Not just to complain about being a, a minority, but complain about being a micro minority in our county. Fiercely, just feeling as though, though like I'm underrepresented. There's nobody who leads us. There's nobody who would go before us. We're, we're always going to be out there, just out in the margins of society and nobody cares. And God, do you even care? That's how I have felt multiple times throughout this last month and especially this week. But here's what I've learned from the psalmist as I've read through this psalm and I've just rehearsed it. The psalmist reminds me not to criticize the Lord and not to critique the Lord's plan. The psalmist reminds me not to criticize the Lord and not to critique the Lord's plan. He doesn't complain about God because he knows that he can complain to God. Let me say that again. David doesn't complain about God because David knows that he can complain to God and he knows that God is still good and God's plan is still good, even if it looks bleak. When Mark was writing his book, another thing that he said is that the practice of lament is one of the most theologically informed actions that a person can take. I mean, if you know anything about God and who he is, then the, one of the best things you can do is cry out to him, is complain to him, is to grieve to him. And I think, bit of an application here, most of us don't know what to do because we don't start there. We want to run fast into solution. We want to run fast into how do we respond and what ought we do and how can we retaliate? And we think of vengeance as being something that is ours when God wants you to fall to your knees and to weep with those who weep. He wants you to have uh, your, your, your bowels to be you know, leaping out of you with compassion because you cannot understand the kind of injustice there, but you know for a fact that there's somebody who sits on a throne and rules it all who does know and who does care and who you can complain to. 
Mark was writing, he said, while crying is a fundamental thing to humanity, Christians lament because they know God is sovereign and God is good. They remember that God delivers. They remember that God promises things in the scripture like, in, like, like he's going to deliver us. And then they can, we, we, New Testament, New Covenant Christians can look back and say the tomb is empty. That God actually did bring us salvation and rescue. And yet we still experience pain and sorrow, friends. We still experience some of the fiercest and the worst injustices that people should never even have to imagine. Where a man can be laid out in the street with another man's knee on his neck for nine minutes and everybody is screaming for him to stop. He's calling for his deceased mother and saying he can't breathe and his stomach hurts and he's just begging for help. And three others who are put there for his protection and to serve him have nothing to say about it other than that the crowd better shut up and don't do drugs. And so he dies. That causes me to lament. That caused me to stay up until 2.30 in the morning and to cry out to God. That caused me to go through the next day needing to wear sunshades everywhere I went because I just my eyes were so red and I didn't want to be mistaken for I'm just an angry, angry man today. No, I was low and I did not feel good. But you got to understand Lament's been given to us that while we have pain and sorrow, Mark goes on and says that it's a language for a person who's living between the poles of a hard life. And the place of trusting God in his sovereignty. He closes and he says, it's a prayer form for people who are waiting for the day Jesus will return and make everything right. Christians don't just mourn. We long for God to end the pain. And you know what? Longing for God to end the pain means that we wait. And so not only do we lament and complain and wait for God, which in Isaiah chapter 30, just if I could turn us there really quickly before I go on to our second point, this was something that jumped out in my study earlier. In Isaiah chapter 30, God actually calls his children this. He says, you stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. You stubborn children, you stubborn person who calls yourself a child of God, that feels like the way to respond right now is for me to retaliate, sin for sin, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I'm going to go and I'm going to, vengeance is mine. That is stubbornness and it is not of the Lord. That is not what he calls his children too. He says you're stubborn. He goes on and he tells them that what you ought to have done is waited for me. Verse number 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. We lament we cry, we complain to God, and we wait for him. That is how you find rest in times of unrest and injustice and protest, is you lament, you pray, and you wait. And a form of waiting, friends, is that we not only lament in prayer because we can trust God, but we also lay down in peace. You see it there with me in your Bibles. 
In my Bible, I have it outlined verses five and six. Most commentators will tell you that this is actually the main point of the psalm. He says, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So David is running from his son, Absalom, and he is fearing for his life. And there's all this injustice that comes against him and that now he's fallen into the place of being for the first time. He knows what it's like to be in the minority. But you know what David does? He says he goes to sleep. He says, I lay down and slept. Then he says, I woke again. And the reason why is because the Lord sustained me. Psalm 127, the Lord gives to his beloved rest. We don't have to be those who are up all night trying to guard ourselves and our homes and being those who are who would try to protect and to guard our own homes and to defend ourselves. We're not those who in times of unrest, we are full of fear and anxiety that leads to depression. No, we ought to be those who we find enough peace to be able to say, I can lay down in peace. David lays down in peace because he knows that even though many thousands of people have set themselves against him, the Lord sustains him. And so he doesn't have to be afraid. This is the epitome. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if we're talking about pandemic or prejudice. It doesn't matter if we're talking about uh, violence or a virus. What, we're, what we see here is this is the epitome of faith over fear. He says, I'm not going to be afraid and I can go to sleep at night. Sometimes the most godly thing you can do in the midst of a time when you're uh, working through something that that this pension in on you and causes you complain against God. And there's so much unrest all around you. The most godly thing you can do is go to sleep. The truth of the matter is, is that you won't be able to do that if you don't trust that God is sovereign and that he is good. If you don't cry out to him, if you don't let your heart and your burdens be known to him, you can't find sleep. But David found sleep because he had cried out to the Lord. We skipped them, but let's read verses three and verse four. He said, but you, O Lord, you're a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered to me from his holy hill. So although the many who say what they want to say, they they don't even think God will hear me. I cried out to God and he did hear me. He says, God is the lifter of his head. And then he uses military terms. He says, he's a shield about me. I might have thousands around me. I might feel like a minority. I might not not feel like I'm protected. I might feel marginalized and ostracized. But the reality is, is that God is my shield. He's my protector. I don't have to be afraid, he says. In fact, he says, I will not be afraid. Sometimes when we get in these moments, we can't go to sleep and our mind is racing and it's just our thoughts are going and it's saying all kinds of things. But the reality is we need to learn how not li- to, to not listen to ourselves, but to talk to ourselves. And when we talk to ourselves, when we preach to ourselves, we're actually saying God is good. God is loving kind. I mean, you know, loving and kind and God is compassionate. God is faithful. God is my shield. God won't let me be dismayed. That's what the psalmist teaches us. 
David writing in a time where things are probably the hardest that they've ever been, finds the ability to lay down and go to sleep. I can tell you right now that it is probably one of the things that marvels people time and time again when they text me and I get phone calls and emails and the other, and they're wondering, how are you doing? What are you doing? And how can I help? And my consistent testimony is essentially that God is sustaining me and that I'm sleeping well. That I'm frustrated, but I'm not holding those things in. I am upset and I am grieving. To, uh, you know, sometimes people call me in the middle of my grief. But the thing is, is that I'm not just holding it myself. I'm taking it before the Lord. And I'm casting my burdens on him. Remember, we talked about that first Peter tells us. Cast all of your anxieties on him for he cares for you. Throw it at him. Don't carry it yourself. Take it off and cast it before the Lord. And so when I do that and I lament and I complain and I grieve, God gives me sleep. He gives me rest in times of unrest. The last thing that we find is that finally, not only does he lay down in peace, and not only should we lay down in peace if we're going to find the kind of rest that we need in times of unrest, but finally he remembers that it is the Lord that he praises. David is in the midst of a time where he has at one time been praised by all the people. And in those times, he even knew that no matter what, what he was def doing was he was deflecting his uh, praise uh, back towards the Lord. He was the king of Israel, but God is the God of Israel. He's the Lord of Israel. And so even, even the people who are now trying to uh, revolt against him, they're saying things like there's no salvation for him in God. I mean, everything is pointed towards God. But I picked up on something that I thought was interesting for us and that we ought to not miss in this psalm. From the time that those who would have been slandering him and saying there's no salvation for him all the way down to the end when he actually says in verse seven, save me, oh, my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. He's addressing God. And he's speaking and they're speaking of God and they're using the word, the, the, the word for God is properly Adonai. They're just describing God for who he is, his character, his title and his form. Right. And he, Barry and I talk a lot about form and function. So they're talking about him in, in that way, that formal way. And it's right at times for him to even say, save me, oh, my God. Especially when he says, you strike all my enemies on the cheek, right? He says, you break the teeth of the wicked. He's basically saying, you slap my enemies and humble them. That's, the, that's a picture of humility. You know how to humble all the people who stand up before me and say all these things. He, he then he goes and he says, he breaks their teeth. You take their authority away. That's what he's saying. You, you don't allow them to continue to have authority over me. And so he's talking about God this way, but then he turns and he, 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 or, or at least I want us to turn and I want us to see that throughout the Psalm, David remembered that he praises the Lord. Why is that a big deal? Well, whenever you see in your English Bibles that that word Lord is capitalized what it is, is a replacement for God's covenant name, his personal name, 
Yahweh. It's not Adonai, his title. It's not one of his formal functions. It's not even, you know, that which should help us to see him from a military standpoint. No, it is the, the covenant faithfulness of God that he's calling on, the personal closeness, the, the name that God has given to his people and only his people know him that way. When he says, I am that I am, he's calling, he's Yahweh. And they love the word. They love the name. If you go throughout the Psalms, especially you'll see that David, when he sings of God, he more often uses the word Yahweh. He calls him by his personal name because he knows him intimately and he loves him. And so he praises him. And what we've been blessed to be able to see as we think redemptively and we go back with this redemption and we think about history in the place of finally there came the, the salvation of Israel. And we saw the, 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 the one who would keep the throne of David active and rule on it with righteousness in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. We see that the salvation comes and justice comes. And now you find that justice is served either on the cross or on judgment day, but it is served. And so when David says, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, then he declares in verse number eight, salvation belongs to the Lord. He says, your blessing be on your people, your blessing be on your people. You know, sometimes we think that blessed and blessing, these are just these Christianese words. No, these are big words uh, in terms of their significance that are written all throughout the Psalms. And in fact, right here, it's like an anchor from Psalm chapter one. It started out and said, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the uh, way of sinners. And it goes on and says, he's like a tree that's planted by streams of water yields fruit in his due season is always provided for is always healthy and thriving and flourishing that man is blessed psalm chapter 2 ends by saying that blessed are all who take refuge in the lord and it even says that a refuge is not just in the lord where verse 11 had said serve the lord yahweh with fear but then it says kiss the son lest he be angry and perish or at least you'd be angry and you perish in the way. It actually gave us a prophecy and a look into the fact that Yahweh, the Lord, would send salvation in his son. And now he says here, your blessing, your blessing, Yahweh, is on all your people. And it's because of that very reality. Friends, verse number eight in Psalm three says salvation belongs to the Lord. That word for salvation is really uh, Yeshua. And if you know, like me, the, the proper, more Hebrew name for Jesus is Yeshua. What it says is Yeshua belongs to Yahweh. Yeshua comes from Yahweh. Yeshua is only in him. There will come a time where salvation that belongs to Yahweh would be extended to all of his people and not just one ethnic people, but people from every tribe and tongue and nation, people who are in majority categories and people who are in minority categories, people who are uh, in, in large numbers and people who are in small numbers, people who are in places of prominence and people who are oppressed, people who are uh, widows, people who are the poor, people who are the lame. He said salvation came and comes to all. And that comes in Yeshua. That comes in Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus Christ came, he left the earth and he brought to us the salvation of the Lord. And now by putting our faith in him, by believing in him and entrusting in him, not only do we have salvation that promises us eternal life there, but we have an eternal life here that we can now praise the Lord. We can now lay down in peace and we can also complain and grieve and lament to him when we pray. This psalm pointed out to me that Jesus Christ came and gave us the ultimate fulfillment and the peace that we need in times of struggle. If you want to know what we should do when things are going bad and going awry and we have all kinds of injustice and we have protests that are happening, some good and some not good, and we have all kinds of unrest, how do I find rest in these times? Friends, the way we find rest is we take our grievances and our complaints to God. We don't bottle it up and ignore it. We don't retaliate and take things into our own hands. No, we go to God and we complain to him. Friends, not only that, but we also, because God is a shield, because he lifts our heads, because when we're oppressed, he actually pulls our chin up. Because he's our glory, which means he's our boast. This is a term of when you used to go and, uh, you know, and win a war and you come back. Whatever you came back with was your glory, right? All the spoils. Because God is our boast, we can lay down and go to sleep. Some of us are up all night, restless, and can't sleep because we do not boast in him and because we do not cry out to him because we do not see him as our shield, but we try and protect ourselves. Humble yourself. And we don't only, we don't only lay down, but we, we praise the Lord. David is praising the Lord here all together. He's written a song, and this is on the morning after he is woken up, but he is fleeing the city and his life is on the line. He writes a psalm that reminds us that God is good. God is faithful. All hell is breaking loose out there, but there's peace. I have peace and I have joy, even though I'm not happy. Friends, God wants us to have this and he wants us to see this. I was reading this week in one of these commentaries that I have. It's an ancient Christian commentary from uh, some African church fathers. And it was Augustine who said this. He said, he who gives salvation is called the salvation of the Lord in that verse. So we just talked about verse eight. And it says that he is likewise our salvation who received him. Picking up on this later, about 100 years later, Flavius would say by this one sentence, he both enjoined on people what they must believe and he promised what they can receive from him. So from Africa in year 300 to Italy with church fathers in the year 400 to where we are now, what we should see is that God gives to us rest and salvation and peace and joy if we trust in Jesus Christ. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? 
Here's a moment where we get to wrestle with whether or not I have come to know him in the fellowship of forgiveness and the intimacy of me being able to lay my head on him. I'll never forget about Matt Chandler talking about a guy who 6'5 and 220 pounds just coming and laying his head on his chest and just lamenting the things that were happening in Dallas when there were shootings and what that really looks like and what it pictures when we have an opportunity to go to God that way. Do you feel that your close relationship with God is that way. If not, it may be because you're believing things about Jesus, but you have not believed in Jesus. May I encourage you even now just to take a brief moment to silently examine your own hearts, all of us, closing our eyes and just thinking and and, and giving ourselves an opportunity to just allow our, 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 our mind's voice to speak to us and to give us an answer as to whether or not our conscience is clear. And if your mind has uh, shown you that, yes, you know Jesus in the fellowship of your forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, and you long to, and you are waiting for him. You're not like those who are stubborn in Isaiah chapter 30. No, you're waiting for him because he's a God of justice. And so he's going to make things right at the cross or on, on judgment day. If you're that person, I want you to now pray for those who may be listening. And that's not the truth. The first thing they thought of is, is, is no. I don't know Jesus Christ in the fellowship of my sins. I don't know him in the partnership of a close family relationship where I am his brother. He's my big brother who has given his life for me. And now I get to reign with him around a table. And we're, well, we're, we're a multi-ethnic family that reigns forever because we're the body of Christ. I mean, they, they don't feel that. So I want you to pray for them. And if that was you, I want you to pray for yourself. And say very simply, God, save me a sinner. Save me, O Lord. O Lord, I've got many foes from the inside to the outside, my own sin to the world, my own flesh to the devil, my own wrongs, my own shortcomings. But God, I'm asking that you would save me. Cry out to him. 